I, I spoke to Philip Weinstein. Philip Weinstein is a scholar. He was uh, the, the head of the American Faulkner Society for a former head of the American Faulkner Society. He's written extensively on Faulkner and modernism. Um, there's a 2010 book, Becoming Faulkner. Um, there's a 2005 book called Unknowing, Work of Modernist Fiction. And then there's a 20, uh, 1996 book on Faulkner and Morrison called What Else But Love. And even the uh, 1995 uh, Cambridge Companion to Faulkner, um, Phil Philip Weinstein edited edited that. Sure. I'm walking my dog. I'm walking my sister's dog. I just dropped the damn leash. But um. Okay. Okay. Calm down. But Phil was also my teacher in undergrad. About ten. Man, almost over 10 years ago. So it was like my first couple years in undergrad. It was 2009, 2010. Um, but I remember I took this modernism seminar. And that's when I first read Joyce, Proust. Um, maybe maybe Dust, Dust, Underground Man, Kierkegaard. It's modern epic class with read Ulysses and, and War and Peace. 100 Years of Solitude. Um, just a lot of really formative reading experiences like seminal reading experiences in that class and I think it in a lot of ways kind of pushed me in the direction that I ended up going in and obviously he he teaches mainly on Faulkner Bubba come on bro um Bubba chill um hold up but basically you know he was my advisor for a second and uh a few months ago I want to say in January or February, yeah, I got an email from him just kind of saying, and we had checked in over the years one time, right when I, after being out of school for eight, eight, uh, for five years, six years. So after I got that email from him, kind of just checking in and being like, oh, I saw your, your, you know, your book came out. Um, I kind of went back and I, I read that Becoming Faulkner book of his, and it was really, it was really surreal having so immer- been so immersed in Faulkner over the years. But much later, not, you know, not when I had him. I kind of talk about this in the pod, but um, it was just interesting timing hearing from him. And yeah, he was born in 1940. So he'd been around thinking about literature, writing about literature. And, you know, thinking back on his classes, there's just such a reverence and an intensity and um, a seriousness in those classes reverence mainly you know he would just do these lectures and everyone would just be so charged up and locked in you know I think the main element of focusing on Faulkner and and modernism is sort of his general theory you know a book called Unknowing Um, oh and then most recently 2019 he published a book it's called Soul Error Um, but um, so much about fiction trying to capture the unsayable or kind of the realist model of perfectly remembering your life and representing it in a realist way being unsatisfying and how modernism tries to more accurately to capture what life is actually like which is a series of disasters that you're unprepared for (laughs) over and over again Uh, so yeah, that was I was feeling that I was feeling that in a different way when I when I ran back his book past couple months, and I, I was preparing to go on a trip across country or down to Arizona to write to write about something which I'm writing about, and we we were kind of we I'd gone up I'd gone up to uh, sorry bub I'd gone up to uh, up the coast to to get something I needed for my trip, so I was up the coast and basically. Uh, Phil lives in Martha's Vineyard, and I was up on the coast by Boston, and I was like, I just reached out to him and kind of, you know, I when you interview someone like, or you speak to someone like like Phil, who's so, been doing it for so long and has such a wealth of knowledge, you always want to be more prepared than is possible, you know. I was kind of trying to read every, every book again, and, and uh, feel like my sense of 
Faulkner was totally clear, but that's not really how life ever works, according to that model of thinking anyway, and it's really like you sometimes you just got to move intuitively, and I felt like if I didn't hit him, I felt like if I, if I didn't catch him then, I wouldn't end up following through and speaking to him, so basically last Saturday, two Saturdays ago, I was upstate already just building out my my truck and I was listening to As They Lay Dying as preparation on audiobook. Listen to the audiobook. Um, and I've been running back his books, thinking about him. I bombed it up there, took the ferry across. Um, and we had a really, really nice, you know, it was wild. It was wild. We, I hadn't seen him in a damn long time, you know? So, uh, Bubba, what are you doing, bro? Um, but we just spent the day, drove around a little bit chopped it up spontaneous um yeah incoherent as always and how i'm talking i'll get better though and i I screwed up we had really good audio and i messed i it's the backup audio i gotta figure out how to be be more prepared for what's coming so i don't continually have a disaster after disaster but here it is so so when i had you as a teacher in 20 2009 i hadn't read any Faulkner, and um, when you taught the modernism seminar at Swarthmore, um, it was, you would, just your lectures would just, it was a lot of the stuff about unknowing, the limits of language, um, unpreparedness, and these literary forms that tried to capture that, and that was so influential to how I thought about language, and and uh and writing and going forward but i think what's interesting is that when i wrote uh the book i put out i was kind of rebelling against what i felt was a type of deliberate obfuscation in literature and i wanted to get to something that was so direct and raw and vulnerable Mm. and that was kind of the idea behind um Um, putting my book out. Interestingly, while I was reading a lot of Faulkner during the time that I was writing it, and then those forms came in to the book, but the main drive was this directness or, or, you know, orality. There's, 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 you know, it's not all in that binary of obfuscation versus clarity. But then when I reconnected with you and when I I started emailing with you again, you, it was like this whole world I had done where I, you know, that fall, I, I methodically read through Sound and the Fury, As I Lay Dying, Sanctuary, Light in August, and Absalom. And we read some influent, people who were influenced by Faulkner, like, you know, Toni Morrison, uh, Garcia Marquez, Antunes, his Portuguese writer. Um, and um, it was just suddenly, I, then I just delved into your Faulkner writing. After, so it was this really strange thing, and I had just been feeling all all that uh, stuff about unpreparedness, and almost like with what I'm trying to write now, that type of clarity, just that directness and clarity and vulnerability wasn't enough to write what I was trying to write about, and that's why I felt I was trying to express to you in that email. But I I'd be curious about if you could talk about you talk about the difference between like a Henry James vision of literature versus like a Faulkner or modernist vision of literature and how that arc happened for you from even just growing up in Memphis and then going through school and whatnot. Well, in my case it 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 exploded with a, a bad drug experience when I was um, just finished graduate school and um, I'd been a Henry James devotee. I had Loved James in college, got my doctorate. I wrote my PhD dissertation on James, and I think what James meant for me was control, um, elegance, um, manners, um, culture, all of the fine things. Um, he embodied them. He was proud of not being identifiable as either British or American, but someone who could be both, who was both, and they were gorgeous 
uh, difficult, rewarding novels, the keen-spirited. Well, after this drug experience, it's just, I found it harder to even read James, um, because I became so aware that I was being, it was, a mo it was for several hours of being undone, and that it, it put me in touch with the way in which being in the moment is being exposed to what you didn't know was coming. That's not always true, but it comes again and again into people's lives and started to make me feel that there's this huge charade that uh, we sort of have it mapped out and the map we have is what we're going to live into. Yeah. And that's, I realize that's not how anything happens and um, that being moving through things and being unable to rely again on what made sense earlier is the kind of elemental drama of uh, how we go through because otherwise you freeze and it's possible to monumentalize yourself right. and just stay within that voice of authority but that's to fix time and no longer to live in it yeah that's to fix time and no longer live in it so do you feel like it was more that after that experience, which you've written about it, you read about it in Soul, um, Soul Air, yeah. your most recent book, and you also, you write about a version of it in the beginning of Unknowing, right? That's correct. Yeah, yeah. I first broached it. Um, I mean, Unknowing is the biggest book I ever wrote. It took me eight years to write it. Um, I didn't know the title until after I'd written half of it, but I, I came up with, this is my big idea, whether it's correct or not, I don't know, but my big idea was that in the West we really prioritize knowing, that science is built upon coming to know, and the classic novel that uh, we, I grew up on and studied in college is a novel of progression into self-knowledge and self-knowledge. And uh, so I had to discover that, uh, that is, I didn't choose to discover it. Uh, life sort of happened to me. And uh, you know, Faulkner is the opposite of that model in the sense that his life is a mess. I don't recommend that for anyone else to to use as a model, but uh, it's just always able to, he was able to write the drama of nerves uh, and of blood um, without pretending that it was something else. Uh, his novels have structure, he labored to give them that. I mean, The Sound and the Fury keeps coming back to events that are totally confusing at first. But by the end, uh, and this involves rereading what you read at first because you didn't get it, by the end, it's, it's, there's a gorgeous form that's been achieved, but not at the expense of this drama of unknowing while you're going through it. And I think what I realized eventually was that life is like that, that life does make sense. It just doesn't at first while it's happening. Yeah. So it's a more accurate representation of how things actually feel, you feel like. Yeah. Versus, um, is there a way it's helpful and how to... Because it's interesting, I hadn't... There was a lot I learned reading Becoming Faulkner. I had assumed, you know, after, but I, I, reading that after having read all his books, you know. And, um, I mean, the line I keep telling everybody, <laughs> you know, I keep repeating to everybody, you know, ranting it to them. Um, is uh, um, from your book is his ability to look I'm, I might butcher it because I've been repeating it so it's been changing slightly but ability to look at and I might write it to you in the email but it's ability to look at these difficult things um, and uglinesses of whether it's you know uh, a type of possessive uh, possessive misogyny or a type of uh, you know literal you know, possession of other, uh, the labor of others, you know, that history, but, uh, or what, you know, maybe, or even more nebulously, just ability to look at the, 
the difficult things um, without judging, but also without sentimentally excusing. I think about that more more in the context of how I look at things in myself, um, or or in writing, or or I guess I first thought of it when I heard that in the context of the things he's looking at in his books. But after reading Becoming Faulkner, it has to be a little bit in yourself. Yeah, you're looking at yourself. Would you agree with that? I I do. I think that. That for me is pretty far-reaching. Um, other people, many other people, don't share this view. But you have to see from within your own perspective and your own commitments, and you never will get the measure of all of them. But if you read the world entirely um, from within, it's a kind of self-babying. Also, because that's what these shocks are. They're moments of collision between how you've gone about reading the yeah. world and what the world is. So that's like a permanent misfit. Um, it's negotiable, but it's never they never superimpose. And so uh, for me, uh, the ideal is to learn to see yourself and to see others and to accept them for what they are and not, not to sentimentalize them. And it's pointless to simply excoriate them, to uh, wish them away. I mean, the, the, the meannesses in the world are there for reasons. And the most valuable thing you can do is get up close to them and see them. And uh, I think in Faulkner's case, the reason the work lives, it still lives, is that he, he saw it with art. Uh, but that didn't mean he was going to make it likable. Right, right. Do you think, um, I wonder, you know, I wonder if th there's, do you, do you th I, I sometimes think that there's uh, um, less of a palette for, I don't know, sometimes I think that there, there are types of literature that yeah, show show the uncomfortable, ugly things, and, and then there's also a lot of literature that points at the ugly thing as this other thing, but kind of invites you along. For the, I don't know. Well, with, so it, it invites you along to what you feel. To point at it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't know. It might be. Well, a, I don't know either, but um, oddly enough, I, I think. The, the flawedness of his own life kept him from pointing at right. others. Right. Um, I, mean, I think he just knew in his bones that, that to be human is to be inadequate. Whatever forms of adequacy you can find, you keep coming back to the fact that you're this living, breathing, blood-filled creature right. that moves through time and won't move forever through time. Yeah. And has a partial view. And you have to respect that partial view, but you can't deify it. Yeah. Or pretend that your partial view is total and others are mere um, distortions and that you're there to correct them. I think correcting other people, I mean, I'm a teacher. I, I know I've done a lot of correcting of people's papers, but it's more serious to do something other than try to correct other people. Yeah. To try and see what what's out there and i think the my sense of the the writers that matter to me is they they manage to do that they and i i respect them because they seem to get out of their own way and that didn't mean to erase themselves that they they saw what they saw but they did never pretended that it was somehow the universe itself that was seeing itself no they were seeing it but they saw, I mean, the sound of the Fury's power is that each of those chapters is a perspective seeing. Yeah. And it's real as a perspective seeing, but it is still just a perspective seeing. He is, yeah, you say that. he He's literally trying to embody other characters. He's trying to live and feel and express the perspectives, and, you know, of these different characters, whether it's like methodically through every every chapter and as they lay dying or, or, or the four um, parts of Sound and the Fury. Um, but w when I was writing the book during that time, I was doing the same thing where every chapter um, would be focused on one, per like a different perspective. 
but it was still on the position, the framework of a first-person narrator getting their perspective changed by somebody, you know. Um, and still, I think, uh, you know, like the Addy chapter of, of As I Lay Dying was like, um, uh, really big, or there was a moment where this narrator needs to reckon with like what his mom thinks of, you know, or something, you know. But I wonder, but 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 my writing often does get, it, it's it, it, on the surface it is a little self-contained and like self-focused. Um, but um, yeah, I, I I wonder if if there is a certain self, if Faulkner is as much in his. Um, I mean, just thinking about how you wrote about him in the book and. Uh, with his uh, initial relationship and then um, her going off and getting married and coming back and then the successive relationships after that and just how we how we drink and I don't know like I wonder if, if there is if there is a, a, a necessity for a type of self I don't know the word I'm looking for excoriation or Yeah. Taking to task of, for, for 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 a literature to do something differently, where it's like it's actually unsettling the effect. It, the effect is unsettling. I don't know on the reader in in like an important way, where you're looking at those things and yeah, like seeing them through, not judging them and seeing them through, but not excusing them. But when you make you know when you make the reader look at something that's in the world. But I said, don't you think that's why we read? Right. That uh, we, w I think anyone who's honest concedes that you live in a small place, um, and so you both have to acknowledge that that is where you live, and it's a great. It it, it, it requires great art to convey that to others, but one reason that reading is necessary and and not just a luxury is that. We need to get into other places, and that means yeah. other people's lives, yeah. seen from how they lived it. Yeah, yeah. I think with relationships, I mean, think. Let's go back to family. That I think something that occurs often, I would think almost universal, is that as children grow up, they come to re-see their parents. Yeah. You cannot see your parent as an adult until you become an adult. The parent that you see when you're a kid growing up is either all right or all wrong, but the 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 story behind what you saw doesn't become available to you until later. And then you grasp that, even if they messed it up, that you grasp that where they were was itself a complicated space. They had been children before that too. Yeah. They'd moved through this these stages and the challenge is to understand that instead of instead of indict it. Right. I mean the whole the whole book they're burying their you know, their mom. <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah. Um and yet she won't quite disappear right, either. Right. Um they can't get that corpse into the ground. Yeah. Um and you see the children in different ways feel the ang the as I lay dying. Uh, she's dying in them yeah. all throughout the book. Yeah. And they can't bear it. Uh, she's how... I think this is so powerful for, that Faulkner caught, that we make, we make the most intimate sense of our own lives through the role that others play in it. Yeah. So she withdraws as, as a corpse, and they crumble. Uh, and so it seems... You know, she dies... She speaks two-thirds of the way through the book because in a certain way, and she's dead. Yeah. Um, but in a certain way, she's just, she's having, they're having to withdraw her from themselves and uh, they can't bear it. Yeah. Um, so each one has his own way of trying to cope with uh, her absence as a living person and yet her presence as a set of shaping memories in them. You talk about you end you end the Soul Era book talking about the deterioration of of the body as being um, oh 
oh yeah, you talk about like the societal societal insistence on owning. Um, yeah. Um, There's a pathos to this. We don't own anything. We don't own anything. Um, this is beautiful refrain in Joyce's Ulysses uh, in the scene, the chapter that goes to the cemetery to bury Patty Dignam, and, and the refrain is the carriage is moving over the stones nobody owns. Yeah. Um, and nothing like a funeral to remind you that nobody owns. And I, I speculated, it's a pure speculation, what, my editor wanted me to get rid of that line, but I do speculate that the energy to possess has to be fueled by a prior knowledge that we don't possess anything. You wouldn't want to have all of that to prove yourself solid and founded if you didn't somewhere know before that and after it that you are not solid and you are not founded. Do you think that's the main thing that Faulkner is critiquing in all his books, this impulse to like, I, I sometimes, I was kind of trying to articulate that earlier, but I sometimes think that, yeah, whether, whether it is, comes out in, you know, Massage the, the 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 you know controlling caddy, um, in Sam and the Fury or you know um, um, even even uh, what happens at the end? <laughs> I say they dying when I was, was it an abortion or the teeth and gets the catch. She's the yeah doing Dell is gonna do Dell trying to get a abortion abortion but they're just being taken advantage of by yeah the druggist exactly yeah. exactly um there's this kind of get yeah, controlling possession and then obviously you know Sutpin trying to possess everything. i was thinking of Sutpin as you were talking yeah that, exactly uh, Sutpin's a and look at that he's 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 his founding his own shaping impulse springs from a door closed in his face Oh yeah. Uh, as a kid, he's told by a black butler, "Right, you go to the back door because you're white trash. You don't come in the front door. This is the big house. Um, uh, the big man lives here. Yeah. Uh, you got something to say? You come in the back door, and that door closed in his face drives him for the rest of his career to create a big house and to be inside it. And then the pathos right. of the book is in. Um, Charles Bond comes knocking at that door wanting to marry his daughter. Right. And Charles Bond got a little drop of black blood and that yeah. can't be tolerated. Yeah. And uh, so I think that book is just captures it captures the need for respect and the kinds of damage that you can inflict as you pursue that need. Yeah. And do you think it's in a lot of ways, uh, um, you know, I, I, I had actually recorded a long conversation, you know, I was telling you about my friend Harold, who's, who's about yeah. to put out his book, and I recorded a, a long conversation with him right after we both read that book. And his, his paternal grandfather had just died, and then my paternal grandfather had died like four months before. And I, my reading of it was, it's like, uh, I mean, you, maybe it's obvious, but it's like Faulkner, or it's kind of him, you know, it's two friends sitting in a, in a, in a tomb like you know dorm room that's right thinking about trying to piece together a story but it's really but in, you know however it's amalgamated it's it's going down that male line and trying to figure out you know <laughs> how, how we got here or something like that's, that that's that's actually that's true is that how you I, yeah i think that that's um you talk about that a little That's bit. That's patriarchal descent. I mean, the, the two, you've got the two sons. We don't right. know um, Shreve's parentage, but right. you've got Quentin in, in a Harvard dorm yeah. with his roommate Shreve, and it really matters that they're two young men. Yeah. Um, and um, there's a beautiful passage, uh, I can't quote it, but a little of it is that how it took this person to make that person, oh, yeah. that person to make that person, and that person to make that person, and it took Thomas Sutpin to make us all. And yeah. when you go through that litany of names, they're all male. Yeah. 
Uh, and that shows, it seems to me, that incapacity to name the female mm. is the image in that gorgeous passage is of a drop into a pool. Uh, and it's an umbilical scene where a drop comes into a pool and that drop spreads and it's going to be the same spread whether you came in three generations ago or now that drop is spreading it's always going to be the same story the same reverberations the same waves and uh, the imagery is of of of, of the, the sperm hitting the liquid and uh, and the male force germinating and it just never names the female space required yeah. for this germination. Yeah. And the lack of that name is one other way of saying why this drama has got to end in disaster. Because he kicks out. Remember, he kicks out the first wife. Right. Uh, you lay Yvonne because right. um, she had a drop of black blood in right. her. Right. And so Bond is the offspring that has been repudiated. Well, don't you think in a way what, he matters because... He keeps showing that, that, that the messiness of the social scene we're in, that we never have the adequate map. Right. Uh, we're, we're, we're caught up in it even as we're trying to get control over it. You're saying that Faulkner does? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, I think a lot of the, yeah, presentation, presentations of, I don't think there's a lot of, a lot of allowance of, of admission of messiness. Or not allowance, but, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's more, it's, it's I, I, I like that as a reader. I don't know if, if, uh, yeah, I should stop making comments about how the culture is, who knows how it is right now, but I, I do think in some ways, um, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to, 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 try to write something like that because you're putting you're, you're you're showing a lot of a lot of mess you know I don't yeah know. that's how I feel well a bit it's my, um, my experience of right. I, I the last thing I am is any expert on where we are either in uh, and less than you of where we are as a reader or as readers and writers I'm being told by everyone I do a lot of teaching yeah here I just do it most almost most of it for free and sometimes I'm paid to do it, but I, I'm teaching long books. I know that in the in the larger American culture, and probably not just in America, people aren't reading long books. I know that English departments and history departments are having a lot of trouble in, on most college campuses. Yeah, um, people don't want to read long books, and all the technology is in the interest of speed and brevity. Right, um, and yet. Things take time. It takes time to write books. It takes time to think. Yeah. And one of the one of the things that I worry about with the speed uh, quotient of the new technology, get it shorter and faster. Right. Do it with two fingers instead of your whole hand when right. you write. Is that the the temporality of thinking is truncated? Interesting. It, it, it takes time to figure yourself out. Yeah. It can take a whole life to figure yourself yeah. out. And it's an impoverishment if we're at a moment where the mess of thinking and feeling and the wordiness required to say that is no longer palatable. Yeah. Yeah, you have that uh, part in the book of talking about the humanities and how it's being, you know, looked at as unimportant now. Um, yeah, I some I really I really do feel like um, there's a way to just a very human way to to see the different see a certain that the reason why I keep repeating that quote to people is because I feel like there's something that happens with. A type, the result of a type of really long thinking or a really sustained thinking and coming and representing it a certain way is this really private experience of like seeing the nuanced sides of something in this like kind of unsayable way, which is what I kind of feel like I looked at a lot of those books for, you know, and I, and I feel like, um, 
yeah, I, I just feel like on some level things started to get so blunt in, in how we were able to express stuff, you know, in like, like, I don't know, in the last few years or something. And I felt like I was remembering that there is the possibility for that or, you know, through a lot of times through, through, through which that that would be my case of like what humanity the humanity does you know when you're saying in the solar but but through I, I don't know I think I think that's maybe one one of the cases for what reading and literature can do you know what I mean um, I think I do um, what I'm taking away from what yeah. you're saying is that um, that complicated communicating of my experience yeah. just to others it's an art to it it's a labor and an art to make it legible for someone else right. without blunting it yeah. that was your word i think it's the right word yeah well it, you can't say anything important in 20 words or 50 words or 100 words i mean you can do a poem that's chiseled with with provocation yeah. and means more than the 80 or 100 words right. that are in it. But a piece of fiction, even a short, let's just take a short story. It, it's, it's crafted in such a way that it means more than the 10 or 20 pages uh, that it gets. In fact, the, the achievement of it is to have gotten into 10 or 20 pages, something that just keeps resonating past that. And I think it's it it's it satisfies a hunger that I think most people have to make more sense of life to, and try to understand what others' lives are like. What's it like inside yeah. for them too? And I I think that's why people go to libraries and get out books yeah. and why they buy books. They want they they somehow know that this little piece of it they've got. It's fabulous. It's it's them. It's all they've got. But it's only a piece. Yeah. And you go to others to see what does that piece look like, and right. and I think you hope there'll be a mirror of some sort between what you feel inexpressibly inside yourself and what you're reading, and right. on on that other person's page. That person didn't know you at all, right. but that person's writing can be a mirror, in which you find yourself other as other. And that's an enrichment. And I hate to see that. Yeah. I'd hate to see that powerful uh, activity diminished. Right. And I wish, and it makes me sad that in colleges, I, I think there's less of that happening, at any rate, less of it happening in courses. Yeah. I, but you also were talking earlier about bringing in um, a personal element or a memoiristic element to your. Um, more analytic or critical writing, and obviously you had that intro to unknowing, um, where you talk to a personal experience. But in in your most recent book, you're talking a lot about your childhood, and um, I really like. I, I don't know. Whenever I read that in that in in a, in, a, in a context of, I feel like it's like this. You're giving. You're actually kind of making me, the reader, acknowledge you as a unique entity, or one does do that. You know, and it has some, uh, you know, um, respect of other effect that, that it has. Um, and it makes you think about your particularities. You know, I feel like, you know, the kind of traumatic experiences of, of in college, you know, eating clubs or, or just growing up in Memphis and, and you know, being in a Jewish community in Memphis or, or not in the community, mm -hmm. just things like this. Um, but you were saying that's something you, you're more uh, attracted to doing now? Yes. Uh, you can't, or at any rate, in my career, so my career, career's a big word, my years uh, as, a, as a professor of literature at yeah. the college level are between the 1970s and uh, 2015 when I retired from Swarthmore. Um, for self-respect, I kept writing literary criticism and publishing it. I felt like when I got my doctorate, I signed that contract in a way. I was going to stay alive to what the, the academy was asking people to write. 
And so I wrote these books and it was important to be able to uh, reach a scholarly audience. I had two or three dear friends whom I made through my work on Faulkner. We'd go to conferences together and we would share each other's work. And the best criticism I ever got on my Faulkner work came in that understanding but critical format, the form that only someone as informed about Faulkner as I, or maybe right. more so, could give me. That right. was precious. Right. But I reached a point where the, and I could be wrong about this, but I reached a point where for me the undemocratic uh, dimension of a special language that only trained experts can enjoy right. was unacceptable. I felt like, I, when I quit, I was 75. I didn't know and don't know how much longer I have. I thought, I want to try to convey in ways that aren't just personal, my personal life, what yeah. I think about things. Yeah. For that, I needed syntax that anybody could read and a vocabulary that was known. You couldn't get into my Faulkner work and make much of it or into unknowing unless you had done a lot of, of that reading right. already. And my new, my latest book, um, Soul Error, was an attempt to write for an audience that needs no special preparation just yeah. to, to have lived. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, earlier it was it was making me think of uh, when you're talking about sub, the sub pen stuff, um, which and the inability to name the. the the female, like it's, it's, I think at one point I said, okay, you know, I was publishing under different names and I said, I'm going to use the name that's on my American ID card and start publishing that as an act of openness, you know? Um, but I have only my dad's names, but I'm equally one thing as I am something else, you know? It's equal. I am as much as I am not, you know? Right. But then it's, you know, it's just... Maybe it's just some. Maybe it's just a weird observation I've been having about just like Asian American identity or something. But well, it it's sounds just interesting to me. Thing uh, to get the what, you know. I sort of hear our earlier conversation of owning. Yeah. Come back into play. Uh, there's there's no one category that owns you. Right. And right. that says who you are. Right. Uh, your 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 strength comes from a mixture. Right. And it, that's so much more interesting, it seems to me, than the pretense that we speak out of one consolidated group identity. There is, this is maybe not pertinent, you may not be able to use it, but one of the chapters I wanted to publish yeah. in Soul Error it's about my experience growing up with a black woman who yeah. brought me up. I was like a second mother. Who you mentioned in... Uh, I mentioned Tony it. Tony Morrison. I did. Yeah. Good for you. That's. There was a bigger piece that I... But it's, it's the essentials are there in the Tony Morrison yeah. piece. And I wrote it more fully for unknowing. and I mean for soul error. For soul error. Because there's four chapters about growing up. Yeah. And this was formative, yeah. And um, and the 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 structure of that essay is to set up what it felt like then, innocently, to be cared for and helped by a black woman who just happened to be part of our life. Contrasted with what it looked like later after her death, when I finally had a lens that was not available and shouldn't have been when I was a child, but that lens was a race-informed lens that showed me where she'd come from, how we were able to get hold of her in our household in the South in the first place, and what we had necessarily misread. For me, it was a love story, uh, but I had to learn later that I, for her, it may well not have been. I think she, I think it was mutual, but I do not know I, what I found out later is that it was socially structured to the hilt. Uh, well, I wanted that to be a part of Soul Error, and the editors said, uh, with all due respect, and they love the rest of the book, 
do not include that because no white figure, no white person can know, can say, can talk about race matters in a way that it's not going to be unintentionally offensive to um, their audience. And I wrote back saying, you're the press, so it's your call, but I can't live with your reasoning. That uh, what, I, what I knew about her was real. And uh, I don't think there is an authorized black perspective on experience, just as there's no authorized white one. Right. Um, and it's, we're all impoverished by, um, I think we're all impoverished by the contemporary conviction that white people can't speak authentically about their experience with black people because they have and it's true to say this, they have been so abusive over history in this country to them. What, remind me of what year you were born? 1940. 1940, right. in Memphis. Right. So, segregation at its height. Um, I never heard the term so segregation term growing up, but there yeah. it was. Yeah. So, Vanny would have been uh, 80 years earlier a slave. Okay. And now she's a black woman with no education who needs a job, and it'll right. take a white family to give her the job, right. and she becomes a maid. Right. You were saying that in in the in the Morrison book, or or, or, or the Faulkner and Morrison book. Yeah. Um, um, that the Dilsey character. Do you think of? This I think of Vanny. Yeah. Read the Dilsey character. It's so funny when I, when I was reading Silent Fury. Um, for a time, I thought I was. <laughs> I, w I would uh, I would associate myself with the um, um, or sometimes I think I'm the Quentin character <laughs> the guy self-appointed you know whatever the, the genius guy who was messed up really <laughs> you know, this, is, this is I should write this down I should say this aloud sometimes <laughs> I think I'm sometimes I think that my family was kind of like um Jason? No, no, no. Well, well I guess I, I, I sometimes it was okay. So some, and then sometimes I'm the ben, sometimes I'm Benji because I'm yeah. incoherent and uh, yeah, and you know, you know, just stumbling around. But sometimes I also think I'm because uh, so like you know, my family growing up, we kept living in uh, in little communities of like people with you know they were caretakers, people with disabilities, and until fifth grade they tried to live, um, they tried to. Uh, live out in the world and they were substitute teachers in Sacramento and then um, my parents split uh, and then my mom moved in she was a caretaker for a woman in cerebral palsy in Santa Cruz um, from middle school on <laughs> but we were just in her house we were the caretakers in her house but sometimes I'm like oh maybe I'm you're you know, the black first. family yeah you know like and then you know because also the mom you know the relationship with the anyway the mom of, of Diane you know was in you know tough relationship with my mom, and, you know. Anyway, it's just funny. It, it, it shifts around, but uh. it does. You know, what you're saying also makes me think: if if the writer lives, I mean, you can see I'm so invested in that writer, um, and I I I, I, I respect a less a less invested stance, but that's not mine. <clears throat> but if he, so to say, one more thing in his behalf, um, if the book really is a success. You can maybe see yourself in incompatible different stances right, right. that he makes live right. in the book. Right. Not, not, not as, it's not one of them that captures you. Yeah. It almost makes me think that at least one working definition of a, of, a, of a not great book is that it comes out of categorical thinking. Right. And it only attracts that category. Right. And it only attracts the cliches in that category, about that category. Yeah, yeah. I think my writing was, or my project was all based on that the idea of oppositional thinking, where you have a, I have a narrator almost like it would ha it would chart moments in my life when something would happen in the world that changed my perspective on something, you know. So it's always a narrator who's mad about something or upset or concerned with something, and then throughout the duration. Um, of, of a chapter, and I was, you know, a chapter, something in the world 
makes him think, you know, and, and constantly playing with the oppositional thinking. Um, but it's interesting. But that, that requires that at some points he be, you know, ranting something that's wrong. Right. <laughs> you know, then under a person that's my name, you know, the narrator's my name. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting. And then... And then well, you've got to think, I, I, I think you have to think when you write that, this is worth hearing. Yeah. This is, and you're not saying, believe in this, you're saying, right. hear this. Right. 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 And it's, it's, if you, if you human, if you're, if you feel empathy or human, or you humanize somebody who is repulsive, then it's, it can be frustrating for certain people that's they, true they, why, why i don't like why they do you know so but that is kind of the, you know that is that's what i'm talking something about nuance and, and and putting oppositional thinking might be a good way that if the case for a type of humanities or something like that maybe well jason is the guy i think of when you when you make when you when you make this point he rants and uh faulkner <laughs> it's not that he likes him or doesn't like him he yeah. knows him and he gets all of his impossibleness, Jason's, yeah. on the page. Yeah. It's just so, it's just so for Faulkner, one thing mattered, getting there, putting in your face, get you as a reader to encounter him. And that's, I mean, we, we're blessed. We don't have to live with Jason. We have only lived the reading experience of the Jason reality. But that's very valuable to to, to be there and to it, I think it widens your world to be in his presence for right. a few hours right right yeah <laughs> yeah well I mean you, you it sounds like with your work you you've had to you you had to take head on the, the politeness issue that yeah. it just you couldn't write that way right. you had and I haven't read the book, but I'm, I'm going to. Oh, and uh, it strikes me that it's, I assume, you're staging encounters. That's also yeah. what you're talking about with yeah. oppositional thinking. Yeah. And you're, uh, and the aggressiveness of of some of the experiences has to be there. Yeah. Yeah. With softening, it would be useless. Yeah. That's also why I can't bear the contemporary um, reactionary re refusal to allow offensive texts right. to be studied by young people right. in many an increasing number of states right. in this country right now that uh, the history is what it is there's a meanness in it as well as the beauty and yeah I just it, it's the wrong way to go yeah yeah. Do you have any contemporary writers you feel excited to read in that way? I I don't I don't my, my reading capacity I think is slipping anyway so yeah. I don't retain in the same ways. Um, I'm going to be doing a course on 21st century fiction, and I I just picked out a half a dozen writers that I think are that I like to read. Well, I started with Franson, yeah. The Corrections. Oh, yeah. Um, we'll read Siebold, uh, Austerlitz. Okay. Um, we will read um, Jennifer Egan, A Visit to the Goon Squad. Yeah. <clears throat> we'll read um, uh, Edward P. Jones, The Known World, and Patchett, of uh, The Dutch House, and Colin McCann, a Paragon. Awesome. And uh, it's going to be a challenge for me because I'm not in control of what to say about those books. Yeah. But they, in very different ways, they all speak to me. Yeah. And you you wrote uh, you wrote a book about Franzen also. I did. Yeah. How is that? Um, he's an interesting, prickly, brilliant character. Yeah. Um, and the challenge for me is having written about Faulkner, who was dead. Yeah. I then wrote about Morrison, and I I never met her while I was writing about her. I got to know her a little bit after the book came out. She'd read the book. She read everything on her. 
she man that was mandated. I mean, the press had to send it to her. Um, but the challenge of reading Franson, whom I'd gotten to know a little bit because he'd come back to Swarthmore yeah. in the 90s yeah. to talk. And, um, and I met him. I had not taught him. But I met him when he came back to do a creative writing seminar. Yeah. He was there for a semester. And I liked him. And when he left, I read his early book, um, The 27th City, his yeah. first book. I didn't like it. Yeah. Uh, and then the corrections came out in 2001, and I was wild about it. And then Freedom came out in 2010, yeah. and I thought that was a tremendously different and interesting yeah. book. And that's when the idea came. How does what does it mean that he goes from the kind of airtight fiction of superiority and scorn of mm. that's mm. uh, the twenty seventh city, dry and superior, to this much more humane, full bore experience of of a family, and then of trouble. I mean, the earlier books. Are narrated out of an unfailing intelligence, and one of his, I think, aims to stay alive as a writer was to let other voices speak. And in freedom, mm. much of the narrative is given over to ungrammatical, real voices. Yeah, he had to get out of his way. It's so he realized any posture risks becoming a trap. Right. So, that the idea that any he was developing, a trap. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. idea that he was developing. Yeah, made me want to write about him, and he yeah. agreed to it yeah. on condition that it not pretend to be a biography. Yeah, yeah. Purity made me cry at the end. Yeah, um, so I was surprised by. Yeah, uh, but yeah, it is a little bit more of a generosity. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I think I was. It's interesting. I, I was so, so aggressively and almost angrily pushing against that type of cold, scornful superiority, which yes. I, as in myself, from trying to do, from maybe, you know, writing like that for a while, and suddenly something in me going, do you want to just tell a story, like, tell it straight to some, you know, to somebody who wouldn't, you know, tell it to, tell it to your friend or your coworker, you know. And you wouldn't use that voice. Sorry? And then you wouldn't use that voice. Yeah, that's how I, that's how yeah. I wrote, book I wrote, but it's interesting now where, yeah, I don't know, I, like, I want to. I want to. Um, I want to write. I want to write in a way that adequately captures the complications and the density of the experience you're trying to probe at. You know, <laughs> it's almost like. Um, you know, you can you can continue to evolve however you want, but it's almost like I, I want. You know, sometimes I'll just um, when writing technique is I'll just drink and read. Um, when I read Absalom for that class with Errol McDonald, who was Tony Morrison's understudy and then editor. And mm -hmm. He had us print out the 8.5 8 by 11 sheets for Absalom because he said the text was too small and it's hard to read on the, you know. <laughs> so he said, it was a small class, like eight people. He said, here's a rubber band, here's a manuscript. So I'd read it like that. But sometimes I just, I'll just read, read until I want to start writing. <laughs> just read Absalom, just read those long sentences. It's so amazing. I want to start yeah. writing, you know, yeah. reread them. Well, you know, one thing that I think we're talking about is um, that I think has come up again and again in this conversation is you can't repeat yourself. True. I, and that's what drew me to Franson, that yeah. he realized that he'd gotten into a trap of being so damn smart. Right. And it was dry as it could be. Yeah. And, uh, he had to become something else, which is to say, his voice had to change. Yeah. And um, so the breakthrough book, and I, I think he couldn't have done it without the death of both parents. Mm. That's same with Roth. Isn't that interesting? Well, that, when people die, you can be generous toward them if you fight like hell with them while they're alive. Right. Uh, and back to the parent drama that you right. see them differently when they're gone than you could afford to while you. They were in your space and blocking you. Right. Yeah. So I think he did that with both parents, and, and the corrections is they've got the humanity of, of the, especially the father, 
was yeah. going down. Yeah. And that's granted great dignity. He yeah. took uh, without being sentimentalized. Yeah. All right. Well, that's an hour. I think that's good. Okay. We eat. Let's do it. Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> we are possibly. We are finished.